I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the Oscars. After a brief mailbag interlude last week, we are back and talking in great detail, Amanda, about award season. It's here. It's here. Later in the show, we'll have a conversation with a man we hope is nominated come Oscar time. It's Parasite writer-director Bong Joon-ho. But first, we go back to the awards picture, where on Sunday night, the Academy held its annual Governor's Ball, Governor's Awards, Filmmakers David Lynch and Lena Vertmuller were honored, as was actor Wes Studi. Gina Davis was also honored with the Academy's Humanitarian Award. But what was most notable, to me at least, about the ceremony were the people who were present for it, including a lot of Oscar hopefuls this year, Amanda. Eddie Murphy was there. Tom Hanks was there. Jamie Foxx. The whole Once Upon a Time in Hollywood gang was there. Laura Dern. A lot more. You know what that means. They're all running. Mm -hmm. They're all running for Oscars. We also got our first round of nominations last week the Gotham Awards. So let's go straight to the big picture's big picture. This is a problem in the big picture. Do you know what I mean? Okay, Amanda, the Gotham Awards. Yes. What do you know about the Gotham Awards? They are New York-based. Yes. Because Gotham is a stand-in for New York. Um, And... and Very well done. Thank you. And they are um, indie... Film Awards, and they always have the ceremony pretty early in the season, and their speeches are often um, really vibrant and kind of make some noise. That people are usually recapping them or doing videos of the acceptance speeches. That's right. The nominations are usually driven by journalists and critics, whereas the awards themselves are usually chosen by people in the New York film community. This year's collection of films is interesting, and I think it highlights the New York versus LA aspect of this award show. I would say that this is a very good collection of films, but not terribly representative of where Oscar is going to be going this year. So let's just mention a couple Mm -hmm. of the categories and we can talk about what we see and if any of this really ultimately matters to the big race that we talk about on the show all the time. So for best feature, Lulu Wong's The Farewell, Mm -hmm. The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Mm -hmm. Trey Edward Schultz's Waves, Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, and Lorene Scafaria's Hustlers. Mm -hmm. Now, as a human man... These are five of my favorite movies of the year. You truly love to see it. You love to see it. Now, I think this list has been somewhat criticized for being the A24 Awards. Sure. And also Noah Baumbach, a former A24 filmmaker himself. So there's a lot of lineage there. But I don't necessarily... I I mean, I think Marriage Story is pretty much a lock for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. And you got a chance to see it over the weekend. So that maybe we can tease some of that conversation. I don't know if I'm emotionally ready to talk about it, but... Yes. Um, these other films, I think The Farewell is probably the one that has been tabbed to have the best chance at best picture. But do you see a world in which, I guess, these early award shows do more than just, you know, sort of celebrate the films that we expect to not be recognized come Globes and, and Oscar season? Or do, you, or do you think that this is just um, a, a forebearer to what's coming? I think this is probably people sharing their passions for the most part and doesn't shift a lot. The only notable storyline in the best feature category for me is Hustlers mm-hmm. being in here because that means that people really are taking it seriously as a a, a capital F film in addition to a, a great kind of unexpected box office hit featuring Jennifer Lopez. So, And we talked about that a little bit at the time of like, Jennifer Lopez seems like an Oscar contender. Will people take it seriously? It seems like the answer to that is yes. In some ways, yes. But on the other hand, Jennifer Lopez is not nominated for a Gotham well, Award. Well, I, you know. What, which, which is kind of fascinating. What are you going to do with randos in the film community? I don't know. It is it is people expressing themselves. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of very admirable choices kind of up and down. We don't have to run through every single category here. I think one thing I like about the Gotham is, is that it does a lot of 
awards that I really wish the Oscars would do. Mm-hmm. For example, they have the Bingham Ray Breakthrough Director Award. And the nominees here are kind of an interesting collection of people. A couple of films I haven't even seen. Um, Lord de Clermont-Tonnerre. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's pretty good, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Kent Jones is here. We had him on the show earlier this year. Joe Talbot from The Last Bachman in San Francisco, also on the show. Olivia Wilde is here for Booksmart. And Philip Yeomans for Burning Cane, which is a film I haven't even seen yet, which has not yet been released. So that, th- this is sort of like in in the spirit of the indie spirits meets the Oscars meets the New York Film Critics Circle. Mm-hmm. I tend to think of this award show. And I think the awards themselves are held quite early at the end of this year as opposed to early next year. Yes. And you'll be able to stream them live on the internet and you'll get to see some of those acceptance speeches that Amanda is talking about. But it does feel like a little bit of a lucky to be here kind of award. You know, I see Andre Holland here nominated for High Flying Bird. I'd be pretty surprised if Andre Holland was nominated for Best Actor. Um, Best Actress, likewise, Mary Kay Place for Diane, Elizabeth Moss for Her Smell. These are performances that will be on critics' lists, mm-hmm. maybe on your lists. You know, I haven't seen her smell yet. I need to do that. Mm-hmm. I will do that before the end of the year. I'm saying it in public, so that'll actually happen, probably. Um, how do you feel about being in this moment, this period of award season, where we're like right at the, we're at the gates, we're we're at the dawn. Excited. I think you and I kind of went through a marathon in the last week, and so we have seen most everything, which is great. There are a few outstanding films, which we'll talk about, and there are a few on my list that I haven't seen because they were at the festivals and haven't really been screening for critics yet. But we've seen a majority of the things. And I definitely just had a week where I just saw great movies, and I was like, wow, cinema. Uh, I was, like, very moved by a lot of the films that I saw. And so in that sense, I feel hopeful and excited, and you're like— Movies are great. We have all the movies. And then I started trying to make my Oscar predictions and started thinking about all of the politics and like reading from what Academy voters had to say. And in a creeping sense of dread also <laughs> and anger and resentment uh, it started creeping in. So it's a, I would say it's a complex emotional time for me personally. How are it, you feeling? No, I, I, it's, I have the same exact feeling as you. And it's for that reason that we have decided at the back half of this show, to make predictions, to make bold, reckless, quite likely very stupid predictions. Because as you said, we've seen almost everything. Mm -hmm. Last week, you and I got a chance to see The Irishman. Let me just tell you, The Irishman is good. You should see The Irishman. Uh, You had a chance to see Marriage Story. Yes. We had a chance to see Knives Out, which I don't think will be a part of the awards conversation, but which was fantastic. It just, it lived up to my hopes and dreams. Absolutely. I have been screaming about it on a podcast for two months. What else did we see? Did we see something else? We saw Little Women. Little Women, of course. Of course, Little Women. So all of these movies are, have now been put in front of us. Here, here's a very short list of the movies that neither of us have seen mm-hmm. thus far. Because we've done a pretty good job of doing our homework to this moment. But so far, we still haven't seen 1917 Sam Mendes' World War I film. We haven't seen Richard Jewell, Clint Eastwood's portrait of the man who was accused of the Atlanta Olympics bombing. We haven't seen Cats. It's fine that you put this on this list, but I'm mad at you. Cats. Cats coming. Cat season is nearly upon us. We haven't seen Dark Waters, which I think is going to start screening this week. We have not seen Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Mm -hmm. I did read a bit of box office prognostication about Episode Nine today. It was kind of, kind of, kind of grim. Oh, interesting. It was like this is on track to be the lowest grossing of the episodes thus far on its opening weekend, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Maybe it's because everybody knows what's going to happen. I read some fan fiction, or not some fan fiction. No, like, can we just isolate Amanda saying I read some fan fiction? (laughs) No, but I read some predictions based on nothing. Speculation is what I read about Star Wars that was essentially fan fiction, and I got really upset about it. And 
I told you about this already. We had this conversation. Oh, I yes, don't want to spoil did. it you right did. now. No, no, let's not do that. Yeah, but I don't know. It people's I it seems like people are interested in what happens. I'm interested in what happens. Was the was it that Ray is a Wookiee? What was it? No, it's mm. that Ray and Kylo Ren fuck. Oh, well. And I'm just like We'll just have to I, wait listen, and see. I, again, pure speculation, but let me go on record saying I do not want this as the really casual Star Wars fan who does can't remember the title of episode nine. Not for me. It's not what you want. The only other movie I can think of that we haven't seen that is going to be competing this year, barring maybe your Frozen 2 in the animated category, is Clemency, which is an Alfred Woodard movie that premiered at Sundance and has gotten great reviews. And it was pointed out to me that there are two Death Row movies this year with Just Mercy and Clemency, which is kind of interesting. But that's only six movies Mm -hmm. between the two of us. So we've done a nice job. Hopefully we'll have a peaceful December. Probably not. As we go through all of our takes. Um, Which of these six do you think is most likely to to mess up the the narratives that we're going to break down later in the show. I have, on the document that I made, I have 1917 written several different times with like 20 question marks. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, you know, I don't know what to do with it. It is obviously a World War I epic with really athletic filmmaking directed by Sam Mendes, which is Oscar bait. Shot by Roger Deakins, which is how you know it really is. And they haven't, they're releasing the behind the scenes footage of him just like running in trenches. They're really leaning into, we worked really hard to make this, you know, and it's a very showy style of directing. Yes. They're narrativizing the effort. Yes. Which is an interesting thing. We've, we hear a different version of that with someone like Joaquin Phoenix and his performance in The Joker. We heard all about how he lost 52 pounds and he contorted his body and he mm-hmm. made this physical transformation. This is the full-scale movie version. Right of what sacrifices were made to achieve something. Yes. And it's so funny because the movie is not out for still another two months. But I think that's really smart. And the reason I have 20 question marks is because is it too late in the Oscar season to kind of really break through? Because people haven't seen it. And the Oscars season is like a full month Mm -hmm. earlier this year than Mm -hmm. it was last year. So we're in a really crunched situation. I think we have learned time and time again that— it is harder. The later you get in the season, the more crowded it is, it's harder to get people invested in your movie. You've just created a wonderful segue for our next segment. Let's go to Stock Up, Stock Down. Okay. If it goes bust, you can make 10 to 1, even 20 to 1 return, and it's already slowly going bust. Amanda, we saw Little Women last week. And Little Women is one of those December movies that you're talking Mm -hmm. about. It's one of those movies that there's not going to be a ton of box office evidence to show what a powerhouse it is, but they did start showing the film to various members of the voting bodies and jerks like you and I last Mm -hmm. Wednesday. And we're not going to say too much about the movie, Mm -hmm. but did you feel that it got the response that it needed to shotgun it into the race? Yes, I did. Before we even talk about the response, can I set the scene of our screening? Absolutely. Which was, I believe it was at the DGA. It was. The Directors Guild of America Theater. And Sean and I do go a lot to a lot of screenings. We're lucky enough to be able to see these movies early. And I think you and I had never seen something like this, which was as close to a full-on physical brawl in order to get seats. There was a frenzy. Little women's screening. I don't believe that anyone 
actually got into a fight. I did watch someone steal a seat from a very pregnant woman, <laughs> just like right in front of my eyes, shamelessly. Just someone pointed a seat for the the lovely pregnant woman, and the other person just sprinted past her. The the pregnant woman in question did get a seat, thankfully. Um, I also just got to say, shout out to all, God bless all the publicists who are running these screenings, and we're literally just one in, one outing people. There, some people were turned away. This seemed like a particularly challenging one to manage. Yes. Which is just to say, people want to see this movie. Exactly. There is a lot of enthusiasm for this movie. And so I think even before it started, I was like, oh, okay, this bodes well for Little Women. And I think the movie delivers on that. I think people were, um, it's it's very moving, which is not surprising given that it's Little Women. But it has that emotional journey and that hopefulness that I think everyone entered the screening wanting from it. And it delivers. And I, I noted after the screening that that kind of hopefulness in the last few years has been rewarded at the Oscars. I, I would, you know, I don't think we're spoiling anything by talking about how Little Women ends, but it ends with, on a bit of, with a bit of positivity, a bit mm-hmm. of sunshine. We're having a difficult time in America right now, and people seem to want a little bit of sunshine. A lot of the movies that are going to be competing here that we're going to talk about, I would say they end maybe somewhat happily or with a great deal of, of of wishfulness. You know, once upon a time in Hollywood, a lot of people pointed out to me, well, that ends happily, but it, like it ends happily in a sort of revisionist way, yeah. and not an authentically like honest way, which is great, effective for the telling of the film, but we know to be completely imaginary. Right, and there is a wistfulness and a nostalgia to it. Exactly. Little Women is is operating with a different kind of buoyancy. I wonder if... Do you think that the, this being a many times adapted story that we've seen many times before, even though I will say that Greta Gerwig's version of it is mm-hmm. very different, it is a reinvention. Do you think that something like this that has been done over and over again can go to the highest mountain at the Oscars? So you had an interesting turn of phrase there, which is something that we've seen many times before. How many Little Women's have you seen, Sean Fennessy? Uh, zero. Right. And I think that there are a lot of people in the Academy who have maybe seen the 1994 Little Women, which is the kind of most recent reference point, even though there have been various bad PBS series made in between. Um, But the 1994 one is the one starring Winona Ryder and Kirsten Dunst and Susan Sarandon. I I think that that has a very special place in a certain type of viewer's heart, but that person is a woman and there just aren't that many women in the Academy. Yeah, that's pretty. De- yeah. Well, we're we're gonna find you out. Know, it's still, we'll I think out. it's still seventy percent male. I think something yeah. like that, maybe even more than that. Which is interesting. Greta, of course, was nominated for Lady Bird for Best mm-hmm. Director and Best Picture, so she's got a little bit. We know she's got some traction mm-hmm. with the Academy, and we know she's got some traction with viewers. People like her movies. They like her. Yeah. You know, we we saw the Q and A after the film. People just the all the actors on stage, Meryl Street from Meryl Streep to Florence Pugh. They all love Greta, and they want to be with Greta, and that she has advocates, which is something that you yes. really need in this situation. And I think this movie does as well. I just I have to say anecdotally, I've heard more about this movie from the people, and specifically the women in my life, who otherwise like don't care at all about movies and Hollywood, and like will never see Joker, and don't care about your opinions. And I there is just a really different but very excited audience for this. And they're excited for Little Women. I think they care about Greta. They love Timothy Chalamet. You cannot underestimate the power of Timothy Chalamet on the internet. I, Saoirse, Florence Pugh, it, it checks a lot of boxes. They're just not the traditional Academy boxes. We're going to have to wait to find out. Let's keep moving through this. Stock up to heaven. Robert Evans died at 89 on Monday. Terrible news. Legendary figure in Hollywood. 
One of the biggest figures, I think, in the last 70 years in Hollywood, Peter Biskin called Evans one of the great crash and burn stories of the 70s. In his book, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, he's been memorialized many times over. There's a documentary about his life called The Kid Stays in the Picture by Nanette Bernstein, Bernstein and Brett Morgan, which is, of course, based on his memoir, The Kid Stays in the Picture. For those of you who don't know him, he ran Paramount Pictures in the 70s. He's responsible for producing The Godfather and Chinatown and Love Story and Serpico and Rosemary's Baby and Harold and Maude and a dozen more. And yet he is also a figure of great conflict and confusion because he is... He was a bit of a ladies' man. He um, he made some mistakes. He had a very sort of famous romance with Allie McGraw that then fell apart when she left him for Steve McQueen. He represents a kind of dashing, maybe bad acting at times version of the swanky producer. He was originally discovered by Norma Shearer uh, when he was ba- sunbathing in Los Angeles and then cast in a movie because he was seen sunbathing. Very interesting figure. One of the great voices in the history of Hollywood. I would just encourage people to kind of seek out not just the things that he worked on and was responsible for, but the things that he made where he discusses those things because he's a great mythologizer. And if you care about Hollywood history, you probably do if you're listening to this show. He's a really, really, really important guy. Any Bob Evans reflections? Well, before we started, I asked you to kind of give me the full breakdown of the Bob Evans versus Francis Ford Coppola uh, Godfather saga because that's the famous, like, great conflict in Hollywood, both what almost happened to ruin that movie, but also kind of what he did in order to make The Godfather what it is, which is, of course, that he chose Coppola, as you reminded me. Yeah, he has a unique, there's a unique thing about him in Hollywood history, which is that there are a lot of stories about how wrong he was about things. (laughs) You know, there's this famous canard that he really wanted Roman Polanski to direct Downhill Racer, one of my favorite movies, but but Roman Polanski was insistent upon doing Rosemary's Baby. And so the idea of Roman Polanski not doing Rosemary's Baby is Mm -hmm. an extraordinary sliding doors moment. And yet, Robert Evans is also the guy who, even though he wanted Robert Redford to play Michael Corleone, he is the guy who chose Francis Ford Coppola to make The Godfather. And so, you know, being wrong inside of your rightness is a fascinating version of the Hollywood story, and he's a a clear representation of that. One stock down. Kanye West did not conquer Hollywood this weekend. He opened a film on several hundred screens called Jesus is King. I'm going to just say, actually, I think this is stock neutral because I did not believe that this film would be delivered to IMAX series <laughs> across America. Like, I honestly did not believe it, given what I have learned as a person who follows Kanye West for has many years now. Your entire adult life. Yeah. So it was actually released on IMAX theaters. I think we have to consider that some sort of achievement. He achieved it. He released the record on Friday to Apple Music and Spotify. It's out in the world. As a person that spent the bulk of my professional career chronicling every single thing that Kanye did, this was the very first time I felt completely outside of the experience. Can I be extremely honest with you? Yeah. Still have not listened to it. Do you think I will? Um, let me let me put it this way. With, with some distance from the experience of throwing myself at Kanye, I thought it was pretty good. Okay. I actually thought it was pretty good, and I think it's a big improvement from his last record, and I think it's kind of a one-trick pony. It's a, it's a little sure. bit of just continuing to scratch Jesus's back as a, as a, you know, an intellectual and philosophical oh, approach boy. to movie making or excuse me, to music making and also maybe movie making, but it's not bad. Um, okay. Whether you want to participate in Kanye West art now, given everything that's happened in the last couple of years is kind of a different conversation. I think what's interesting is that I don't have to mm-hmm. as a person who is, tries to stay up 
on what is happening. I meant to listen to it this morning when I drove to work and I just like plain forgot, which just gives you a sense of where Kanye is, at least in my consciousness. I, I think that's a testimony to everything that's happening to not all musicians, but Kanye in particular, yeah. which is that he is just not at the center of culture anymore. And after two days, we've already kind of forgotten that he had a record, let alone a movie that hit theaters, That's which is going to slip away very quickly. That is also, it, it is an interesting anecdote. We do talk a lot about can movie stars open movies and or different types of celebrities, you know, is a YouTube star and influencer going to be the type of person who could make a movie in the future and people will go see it. Here we have someone who has tried on a lot of different hats over the years, but has a huge following and was like, what I'm going to do is make a movie. And and people did not go to see it. No. So store that away for future reference. Store that away and just please bide your time. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, Amanda and I are going to make, let's say, 11 reckless Oscar predictions. Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to make films by learning directly from Martin Scorsese with Masterclass. Or you can learn how to play poker by watching Phil Ivey, one of the true masters of the game, teach you how to do so. With over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there's literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV, and each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. Later in the week on this show, we'll be diving deep into the films of Martin Scorsese and ranking our top five movies, so if you want to learn about how he made those movies, just check out his Masterclass, which is indispensable for young aspiring filmmakers. I highly recommend you check out Masterclass, get unlimited access to every single Masterclass, and as a listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. So go to masterclass.com slash big picture. That's masterclass.com slash big picture for 15% off Masterclass. Amanda, we're back, and that means it's time to go to the big race. Well, mama, look at me now. I'm a star. The big race this year is every race. Every race is fascinating to me. Before we get into the six major categories of the Oscars, I got some general questions for you. Okay. Okay? Yeah. You ready to make predictions? I mean, I guess. As I said to you before, I've just been spiraling over this list. I had too much time to think about it, and I have not enough information because I need all the information. And I I keep futzing with it. It's terrible. Someone should take this list away from me. I need you to step it up. I need you to be confident. I have a list. I have a lot of options. I got a lot of, you know, if-then situations. Let's go. This I'm is just not nervous. algebra. It's, I'm, I'm stressed. Okay. Let's start with some, some, some vagaries around the award show first. Last year, the Oscars did not have a host and the ratings went up 12%. Mm-hmm. Do you think there will be an Oscars host this year? Yes. I, here's why. Because I just don't think that they learned from any lessons. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think also, I believe the it was the Emmys this year that didn't have a host. And that went as poorly as, as anything can go. That was not fun. And I still think that having a host who is a big name can bring some, it can at least helps with the marketing. Do you know what I mean? In theory, yes. So if there is a host, and I agree with you that there will be a host. Okay. And if there is a host, who will that host be? Um, Oh, my God. You're just wrecked. They should get The Rock to do it. That is exactly what I think. Yeah. Didn't we say that last year? Yes. Just get Dwayne Johnson. 
Just do it. I don't know. Did I tell the story about the Hobbs and Shaw premiere on this podcast? Yes. Well, I, I don't know if you told it on this podcast. I'll tell it very briefly. I, at the Hobbs and Shaw premiere earlier this year, there were a number of people there uh, from who worked on the film, including Dwayne Johnson. There was some sort of malfunction with a light inside of a seat during the screening of the movie. And so everybody had to be evacuated from that seating area and they had to stop the movie about 40 minutes in. It was very tense. It was very scary for a minute. People thought there was a bomb threat of some kind. And when we all stood up, it was clear that somebody needed to take control of the room. And so Dwayne Johnson went to the front of the screening room and he took the microphone and he just started vamping. And he vamped for 20 minutes while they fixed the light in the seat. And it was very frustrating, but Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, is one of the great entertainers of our time. And you could he had to have been doing all of it off the cuff mm-hmm. because there was nothing to prepare. It was an unpreparable moment. And he was extraordinarily good at it. So if he was good in that moment, imagine how good he would be with a crack staff of writers and all of the weight of the ABC marketing machine behind him, right. not to mention one of the most star-packed Oscars in recent memory. Just get the rock. Yes. I mean, he's just so charming. At the end of the day, you don't want a host that's going to overthink it. You just want a good old show person who is just like going to make everyone feel glad to be there and will also bring in a lot of audience who otherwise would not watch it. And Dwayne Johnson is that person. Yes. Imagine all of the WWE fans who would be tuning in just to get a look at Dwayne Johnson in a tux. That would be great. Okay. So there will be a host. Mm-hmm. It will be Dwayne Johnson. Great. Will the ratings go down this year? I say yes. Okay. Because I always say yes, because broadcast television is dying. Now, last year, as I, I mentioned, we had an unusual spike up. Every other award show has been way down since then. Mm-hmm. Way down. The Emmys were at a catastrophic low this yeah. year. And to the point of like, do we need the Emmys? I don't know that we do. The Oscars has has stood tall as basically the only truly meaningful award show left mm-hmm. on broadcast television. I think the ratings are probably going to go down this year. Yeah. Because there's not, there isn't a Bohemian Rhapsody, Stars Born, et cetera, in the mix, unless the Joker wave comes strong. Because Joker is fucking huge. This is the biggest R-rated movie in the history of movies right now. I understand that, and I agree with you, except I just don't think—I don't think people are going to see Joker because they're, like, finally a prestige film that will win an Oscar. I am—you know, they're going because it has—it's called Joker. You know? Great marketing. But do they want to see Joaquin triumph, I guess, is is a question. No, I don't think they care at all. They're just, like, (laughs) diagramming, you know, the timeline between when, like, Bruce meets Joaquin at the gate and what does that mean? How many days have passed since they're in the alley and, you know, whatever nonsense. Do you have answers to these questions? No, I don't know. I was just trying to channel one of those people, and it was really uncomfortable. That's You really captured that imaginary person's essence. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I think you're right. I think the ratings are likely to go down. I wonder if there will be some sort of feeling like we need a Black Panther every year to make this show work. We need a Star Wars born every year. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a big hit. That's nice to have that. I think Little Women will be a big hit. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it'll be a $100 million hit, but I think a lot of people are going to go see it. I think there's a lot of really likable movies here, but the tricky part is, and if my predictions hold true and there are three Netflix movies here, on the one hand, what you'll get is a movie that, three movies that a lot of people will have seen. Yes. But will they have the same relationship to it if they watched it at home than if they paid money in a movie theater to go see it, it's kind of a fascinating thing to try to understand that does not have an answer, obviously, about whether people will tune into the show. Right. Well, I think there's even a, a third thing, which is just how people watch TV. And it doesn't actually, their relationship to movies doesn't really matter because even if they go see all of the movies, why would they 
turn on a three-hour boring show with commercials. Especially, keep in mind, Apple Plus is going to debut this week. Then you've got Disney Plus. Like, we are fully in this streaming era, and people just don't watch live stuff unless it's football, I guess. The ratings are down for a lot of sports right now, too. The World Series ratings have been very poor. So it's really, we're in an increasingly curated experience in the world. I'm sure that won't be the last time we say that on this show. How many Best Picture nominees will there be? So I have nine right now. Okay, I have ten. Okay. But that's just because I'm an optimist. Great. And I want as many people to feel love as possible. Okay. As you know, that's my essence. Sure. I think that it's been eight or nine for the past it has. five or six years, right? I, I think it's been a while since we've had ten. Yeah. Will this be the last year of up to ten nominees? Because there's been a lot of talk about changing the format mm-hmm. of best Best Picture. I think that would be a mistake, but I don't know whether the Academy will act with sense. So why do you say that? Because I think in relation to what we were just saying of the way people watch everything is very different now. I I don't think that the model for getting people to watch the Oscars going forward is like a Black Panther because people just watch TV differently. You have to instead hope that people become really invested in a movie and want it to win. And if you have 10 options for people to be really invested in, then you have more people who are going to watch it. It's all I mean, everything is just about um, a niche culture, niche cultural experience that you can export to as many people who are interested in it as possible. Do you think that the Academy writ large, particularly the leadership, Mm -hmm. is as obsessed with its relevance as we are? This is not a prediction. This is a side question. Yes. I wonder. I wonder. Because it's a business on the one hand, and and ratings are meaningful to the business because it will drive the advertising, which will drive the rights to the show. But the Academy itself is a kind of corporate institution that is dedicated to tracking and commemorating history. I think Academy members like being in the Academy. I think that they like feeling important. It's a club that you want to be a part of. And uh, listen, some of these screenings have been Academy events. Like I've started to see a little bit of how this works. And it's just, they like to be treated well. And I think people care about that. I love to be treated yeah, well. Yeah, so do I. It's been delightful. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who's had me. But it seems great to be an Academy member. It's true. But uh, so... Do they care about the business of it? No, I don't think so. I think most people are not aware of what the Academy does. But I do think that there is this self, this super self-interested self-preservation instinct. It'd be great if there was a rogue change agent inside the Academy that was like, what we need to do is nominate Venom. You know, I made this push for Deadpool a few years ago. Right. And it was, of course, somewhat self-effacing. But... I really do think it would be great if somebody came in and they were like, I don't want to say a Donald Trump figure, but somebody who was a little anti-establishment, a little bit of outside of the the bubble culture mm-hmm. of the academy that was just like, guys, why not a quiet place? Like, can we? Right. should we not do that or should we do it maybe perhaps instead of this very small film that no one will ever see again? I don't know. I think that would just be intoxicating to watch happen. Sure. I kind Isn't that what's going to happen this year with Joker? I mean, Joker mm. is Venom, but I think it's Venom with enough you know, shiny things on it. Yeah, it's in a king of comedy suit, though. You know, it's not... It's Sort of. Well, there's a lot of virtue signaling, as it yes. were, towards those things. Okay. Let's go to the categories, okay? Right. So we got six categories we're going to predict. Okay. We'll do more predictions in the future, I promise. People fucking love predictions. They yeah. love to tell us how wrong we were when we get down to it. Mm-hmm. I can't promise we're going to be right about the five things we just talked about or these next six categories. 
I can say that we've seen 95% of the films that are going to be competing in these categories, and these are our gut reactions. So what we'll do is we'll read our five nominees each, and we'll read our who we think is going to win. Okay. You ready? Not at all, but we're going to do this. Best Supporting Actor. Okay. This is a fascinating category. It is. I'm going to give you my nominees, and you give me your nominees, and we'll do winners. Okay. I'm going Brad Pitt, Once Upon a Time in America. Excuse me, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wow, what a slip. Brad has been nominated three times. He's never won. Yes. Al Pacino, The Irishman. He's won, excuse me, he's been nominated eight times. He won in 1993. He has not been nominated since 1993. Okay. Tom Hanks, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Five nominations, two wins, 1994, 1995. Anthony Hopkins, The Two Popes, four nominations. Mm -hmm. He won in 1992. And then Jamie Foxx, Just Mercy. Two nominations. He won in 2005. He was also nominated in 2005 for Collateral, which is a crazy thing that happened. Okay, those are my five. What are your five? Wow, okay. I thought we were going four for five. We we did go. I thought we were going to go five for five, but we went four for five. Um, I have Brad Pitt, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I have Tom Hanks, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I have Anthony Hopkins for Two Popes, which is one of the movies that I have not seen, but there is a, just a movement behind it. You know what turned me around? Actually, Not turned me around. Not turned me around, but <laughs> you know what made me feel confident in making some of these choices, even though I have not seen this movie? Lulu Wong on Twitter saw the two pumps last week and was talking about it. I got to tell you, I cannot recommend a follow-up more than Lulu Wong. It's really great. Everything that the farewell will do at the Oscars is because of her presence and just great ambassadorship. But I was like, oh, okay. She's moved by it. I, I get it. I'm going to go with this. So that's why Anthony Hopkins is on my list. Um, Al Pacino for mm-hmm. The Irishman and Joe Pesci for I, The Irishman. I, I knew you were going to go Pesci. Yeah. Now, we're not going to spoil anything about The Irishman. Yeah. I wanted to put Pesci on the list because I was just knocked out by him. Yes. Knocked out. Yeah. I thought he was phenomenal. And we haven't seen him in a long time, barring the occasional Snickers commercial. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a return to form, and it's a different kind of a part than he's played in the past. But my prediction here— mm-hmm. Well, let me, let, me, let me pause for a second. Here are some other names that I left out mm-hmm. that were on the sort of almost there list. Willem Dafoe in The Lighthouse, mm-hmm. who's running and supporting, even though you can make the case he's a lead. Pesci, Sterling K. Brown and Waves, who I was also similarly just like wowed by. I don't know if the movie's going to be big enough to get acknowledged right. in this category. Timothy Chalamet for Little Women, mm-hmm. very good performance, whether it's the stuff of Oscar, we'll see. And Taika Waititi for Jojo Rabbit. Mm-hmm. And some of that's going to be predicted by what kind of reception that movie continues to get as it makes its way through America. But my prediction is Pacino. Okay. And I just just made this prediction this morning. Okay. And I, I'm going to say right now, I don't feel good about it at all. Okay. <laughs> Not at all. And part of the reason I made it is because he hasn't been this good in forever. Right. And because he's got a huge part in The Irishman. Mm-hmm. Pesci has a big part, but it's definitely the third biggest of the three. Right. Pacino's is the second, and Pacino has a lot to do. Yes. He gets to, to vamp a lot. Who's your prediction? Oh, to win. Yes. I think that I am going to go with Brad Pitt. I had a feeling you would. Well, I mean, sure. if I'm choosing, that's who I'm voting for. I'm not a member of the Academy, but I am certainly voting for Brad Pitt. I think that Pacino and Pesci cancel each other out. because I And I do, there is like a real history in um, the supporting categories of the two supporting people both being nominated. I think it was Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone last year. And then I believe Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson were both nominated the year before that, before three billboards. This happens a lot. Um, but Rockwell did win. He did win, so they don't always cancel each other out. But in this particular case, there is a lot of movement behind Brad Pitt. It is like a big 
Brad Pitt year. He's never won. <sighs> I think Tom Hanks is a real threat in this category he is. also. He's so wonderful in this that's, movie. You know, I think after we saw Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, I turned to you and I was like, run Brad Pitt in Best Actor. Yeah. Which is not a good idea because that category is even more loaded. But I think ultimately people like to reward, you know, it's like spread the Oscars around and Brad Pitt is number one. What a couple of assholes we are just being like Brad Pitt and Al Pacino and Tom Hanks are good. This is one of the (laughs) least interesting kind of conversations you can have. I mean, I I think that if Pesci is in, is, is in play, if he's Mm -hmm. in among the five, it becomes a lot harder for Pacino to win. But yeah, you could see a universe in which the Irishman energy gets way high. Mm-hmm. And this thing that we thought we were doing with The Departed, where it was like Scorsese at the end, he's in his 60s, he right. made this movie. This is actually like at the end. He's in his late 70s yeah. now. So, I don't know. We'll have to keep... Go ahead. I was just going to say, can I say one more thing about this category? Yeah. I put Anthony Hopkins in this morning, mm-hmm. and I took out Timothy Chalamet. Mm-hmm. But I think Timothy Chalamet has like very powerful energy in this category. Um, There's I'll, one scene that is... I'll talk more about like Timothy Chalamet's Lori energy, but you know, prepare yourselves if that sentence means anything to you. But there is also this history of, especially especially in such like an actor-heavy movie, that when people get really excited about a movie, then just all the actors get populated in the categories. And you can see this being kind of like a Timothy Chalamet. This is a confirmation of a lot of things for me about Timothy Chalamet. I don't think it'll happen, but I could see it. It's very personal to you. Well, yeah, I know. Let's go to Best Supporting Actress. Okay. Now, I'm going to say right here, I don't have any runners-up to this category. I don't either. It's not a super strong category this year. Now, it's often not a strong category, but there's weirdly nothing that I could see other than these five women. Okay. So, here's here are my predictions. Okay. Laura Dern, Marriage Story. She's mm-hmm. been nominated twice before. Jennifer Lopez for Hustlers, never been nominated. Annette Benning for The Report, four nominations, zero wins. Margot Robbie for Bombshell, mm-hmm. who was nominated for Best Actress for I, Tanya in 2017. And Florence Pugh for Little Women. Mm-hmm. She's never been nominated. Okay. What, is, what are your nominations? So again, we're four for five, okay. which is really nice. Okay. I have Jennifer Lopez for Hustlers, Florence Pugh for Little Women, Laura Dern for Marriage Story, Margot Robbie, and I think you're right that it's going to be Bombshell, though I did write parentheses which one, though. But I think if I'm picking it, it's going to be Bombshell. We'll talk more about Bombshell later. Um, and I have Shoes and Dow from The Farewell in this category. It's possible. It's possible. I just, there seems like a lot of goodwill around that movie. And I don't know how that's going to translate in Best Picture. But I think there might, I think people are going to remember it. It Okay. My, my big question for you about that yeah. is, is that even the best supporting actress performance in the film? It was for me. But more so than Diana Lynn I, as, as Billy's mother? It just, it's it's the one that stood out to me. I literally was in this movie watching it being like, I hope they run her in supporting. Okay. Because I, you can just see it. It is that candy and in supporting actor. They, they don't often go for subtle performances. It is for the... The person with something big to do or the person with a lot of heart, and she is the part of the film in a lot of ways. So is Annette Benning on the cutting room floor? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Interesting. Which I, I haven't seen the report. Okay. I I I will say it's not Annette Benning's best performance, mm-hmm. and it's not an imitation of Diane Feinstein. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere in between those two things. Okay. And it's interesting. I mean, she's never bad. She's been passed over a few times for work that is incredible. This is, she's the most nominated person who's likely running in this category mm-hmm. in, in the past. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. 
You know, sometimes you're Glenn Close, sometimes you're not. Yeah. My prediction here is Laura Dern. Okay. Having seen Marriage Story without saying anything about it. Yeah. No, there's, yeah. You can see it for sure. And some, some, some highlight real moments. Some highlight real moments. It's a highlight real year for her, both between between Marriage Story and Little Women and also Big Little Lies season two, which whatever you think of it, Renata Klein. She was the best part. Important figure. I thought she was completely yeah. the best part. She is, Laura Dern is running. Truly. I saw her running at the Sunset Tower Hotel mm-hmm. this weekend, literally. God bless. Dressed to the nines, <laughs> dancing into a bathroom, chatting amiably. She seemed like a lovely person. Prediction? I th- I think it's probably Laura Dern, but I'm going to make it interesting and go with Jayla. Okay. We'll just have to wait I and just want to see what happens with that. I dig that we're disagreeing. It's, it's effective for this show. Okay. Best actor. Oh, this, I mean, I have had a breakdown over this category. Just a fucking gauntlet. Yeah. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a category like this. We're going to run down some of the runners up for me. Okay. The runners up, are, and it's shocking for me to say this out loud, mm-hmm. but Leonardo DiCaprio. Interesting. I thought about doing this and I wasn't brave enough. I was brave enough. Christian Bale. Okay. Matt Damon, and they announced last mm-hmm. week that Bale and Damon are both running for best picture, yes. best actor for Ford versus Ferrari. Adam Sandler for Uncut Gems. It breaks my heart to say that, but I just think that too yeah. many old people are going to be strafed by Uncut Gems, which is a fucking masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. for Dolomite is my name. Taron Egerton for Rocket okay. Man. Paul Walter Hauser. Now, we have not seen uh, Clint Eastwood's film yet. We have not seen Richard Julia. Oh, right. But there's a universe. And Paul Walter Hauser is fucking hilarious in I, Tanya, and a very good actor. So it's plausible mm-hmm. that something happens here where we get a new guy we haven't seen before in this race and they put him in. But we'll see. And Daniel Kaluuya for Queen versus Slim. Those are just, that's the runners up. Okay. Yeah. Here's my lineup. Okay. Adam Driver, Marriage Story. Yeah. One previous nomination last year for Black Klansman. Joaquin Phoenix, Joker, three previous nominations, never won. Bob De Niro, The Irishman, seven previous nominations. He won in 1975 for The Godfather Part Two, and he won in 1981 for a little movie called Raging Bull. Antonio Banderas, Pain and Glory, zero nominations. He won Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival. Mm -hmm. Jonathan Price, The Two Popes. Shocking to me to learn that Jonathan Price has never been nominated for an Oscar. Right. That's my top five. What do you got? Um. We're three for five in this. Okay, interesting. But, but I had like a last minute switch and now I don't know how I feel about it. Okay. Whatever, we'll talk about it. Okay. It's exciting. Uh, Adam Driver, Marriage Story. Joaquin Phoenix, Joker. Robert De Niro, Bobby as I call him, for The Irishman. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Eddie Murphy, Don't Mind Is My Name. Here's why. I He was, he was at the Governor's Awards last night and they, I think it was honestly Hollywood Reporter... Scott Feinberg did a write-up of the Governor's Awards, and there was a big picture of Eddie Murphy and Jamie Foxx leading it. And I was just like, oh, yeah. He's going to be hosting SNL. He's doing events. He's doing glad-handing. He was in the Times already. He seems to want it. People seem to really like that movie. Netflix is already spending just so much money that I just— I kind of—my instinct is people are going to go to— old favorites and like famous people, famous old people this season. That's kind of where I am with it. I mean, because they always do sort of, especially in this category, it's just always really, really famous guys. But I switched out 
uh, Antonio Banderas, Freddie Murphy at the last minute. And I could be wrong about that. It's very hard to say. Two guys who I think will be working very hard on the circuit. Yeah. Two guys that are unafraid to throw themselves at this. I think because they're really proud of the movies that they were in, because they know they've got a real chance this year, because they're at a little bit of a later stage in their careers, mm-hmm. and they feel that they need to be, they should be recognized for that. And they yeah. both should. I, they're both wonderful in these movies. Um, I don't know. This is a tough category. Yeah. Uh, my prediction is Joaquin. Okay. Which for weeks it was Adam Driver. And yeah. I'll just say based on what I've seen already, and I haven't seen every single film, like I mentioned, I haven't seen Richard Jewell, but Adam Driver is giving the performance of the year, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I do not think he's going to win. I think they're going to make him go continue to go through the crucible of Academy Award nominations, and they're going to give it to Joaquin. What do you think? I mean, I do understand that for actors especially, Leo's a great example. They made him wait forever and ever to win an award. I'm going with Adam Driver. There are little signs like he was he was already um, honored at Telluride. He got one of the special awards, and he is also on the circuit, and he'll be in Star Wars, so he'll be in everybody's mind. And I just think that performance is extraordinary. I agree. I think the the significant difference between Driver and Phoenix is that Driver ultimately, I think people think is a normal guy. Now, he's a bit, a bit unusual, but he's very reserved in, in the way that he talks. He's, he seems like a decent kind of a person. He's got that military background. He does a lot of charity work. He has a very um, sincere and straightforward kind of relationship to the world. Joaquin Phoenix is considered like an alien. He's much closer to that Daniel Day-Lewis vision of the actor where other actors look at him mm-hmm. and they say, like, I don't know how he did that. And they feel more likely to reward that. Now, I could be wrong. And I think there's a kind of quote-unquote problematic nature to Joker, which may hold Joaquin back. And Marriage Story is a big-time achievement. Yeah. But I don't know. I just, I'm feeling, I'm feeling Joaquin. I just think also, I mean, Adam Driver's already had the New Yorker profile. I think he's, he is young. He is only 35, but he's also been in the consciousness for so long. As we've said, he's worked with like every great director at this point and, you know, was on Girls. And I, like, I don't he's as normal as you think he is. I'm not saying he is. It's a normal I think he scans. Which is what's remarkable about it. No one's ever watched a Joaquin Phoenix movie and been like, that guy seems relatable. Mm-hmm. That's true. I think Adam Driver has done it frequently. Okay. Um, okay. Well, we've disagreed on all three so far, which is fantastic. Well, we're just keeping it interesting. Best actress. Again, not a ton of additional runners up here. Anybody that I'm missing from my list... Of, I haven't looked at yours. You're going to read okay. them out. Well, you'll you'll tell me after I've read. We my, have drama live on this podcast. Live, live Let's drama. Go. You love to see it. Renee Zellweger, Judy, mm-hmm. nominated three times. She won in 2004 mm-hmm. for for Cold Mountain. Remember that movie? Mm, barely. Okay. Is Jude Law in it? He is in it. Okay. It was back when Harvey Weinstein ruled the Oscars. Scarlett Johansson, Marriage Story, never nominated. Amazing in Marriage Story. Charlize Theron, Bombshell, mm-hmm. nominated twice before she won in 2004 for Monster. Sir Ronan. Little Women. She's 25 years old. She's been nominated three times already. Outrageous. Aquafina, The Farewell. Okay. Zero yeah. nominations previously for Aquafina. Okay. Though I could see her having more in the future. Okay. What do you got? We're five for five on this one. It's a slim category. I don't want to go into it too in-depth here, but not a great, not a great year for uh, films about women. It's a really good year. For 50-something guys looking back on their lives with pain and regret. If you look at all these movies from Tarantino, James Mangold, Noah Baumbach, Bong Mm Joon-ho, Pedro Almodovar, all these master filmmakers, all dudes, 
reckoning with mortality and loss of innocence and nostalgia and frustration and class and all guys. Mm-hmm. And they got all great performances from all these guys. Mm-hmm. And there have been more movies made by women this year, I think, than in, by studios than any other year. And some of them have been successful. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, there doesn't seem to be a lot of academy, quote unquote, female performances that are going to get the big time attention, which I find kind of fascinating. I don't really know what accounts for that. Well, I think when we talk about the Best Picture nominees, at, you know, at some point, it's just the movies that we're taking seriously are mostly about great directors taking stock of their lives. And I, I don't mean to dismiss those at all. I've been moved by pretty much every single one of them. I, I said to you earlier, and we'll talk about it more, but um, it's much easier for me to relate to a story of like a an old guy being like, shit, did I waste my life? Than it is for me to relate to an old guy, you know, a middle-aged guy in his prime, like dealing with his demons. I can, I also understand uh, wasting my life. Um, so I, I, th- I think the movies are great, but it's, we, there aren't that many Oscar Beatty virtue signaling movies about women this year. And the ones that are, I have in Best Picture. I'm excited to talk to you about that one, but it's, I mean, it's just a numbers game. It's always a numbers game. There are always more movies about men and starring men and made by men than there are women. So I chose my least favorite performance out of the out of three of out of the three of the four that I've seen. I've still not yet seen Bombshell. But I, I think Renee Zellweger is gonna win. Mm-hmm. Even though she's already won. Do you I, also yes, think she's I gonna agree win? With that. Yeah. So this has been one of those like lockety lock 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 awards for months. Yeah. Before when I got to tell you right people were like it's over. It's Zellweger. Of course. And that's She's good. She's running came from Zellweger because they had timed the New York Magazine profile to come with it and she was also honored at Telluride, I believe. She was. And they just set it forward as like this is what's happening. And that often works. Yeah, I guess so. I just without spoiling anything, what do you think of Scarjo? I thought she was very good. Um, but not great. No, I thought she was good and she hung toe to toe that how that movie is constructed at the end of the day. It's not really about her, which is okay. Um, that doesn't diminish the movie in any way, but yeah, I think she's good. So we're going Zellweger. Let's go to best director. Okay. Similarly, this is, I, bit, bit, bit fraught here. I need to I need to see 1917 before I can answer this. So I'll do I'll give you my runners up in, with that in mind. Okay. I have Sam Mendes on the outside looking in. Okay. It's completely possible that that changes the minute they start start showing this movie, which I think they're going to start showing it to us at the end of November. Okay. Um, That's so late. It is late. It is late. I think those first screenings are like November 23rd. Okay. So I've got Sam Mendes, Pedro Almodovar, Marielle Heller, Fernando Morales, mm-hmm. Lulu Wong, and James Mangold on the outside looking in. Okay. My five picks are Martin Scorsese. Uh-huh. He's got eight noms. Yeah. He won for The Departed. Noah Baumbach, zero nominations for Best Director. Bong Joon-ho, zero nominations for Best Director. Greta Gerwig, one previous nomination. And Quentin Tarantino, two previous nominations. Mm-hmm. We're five for five again. Okay, so I think Although that— I really—I put Baumbach in at the last moment, and I had mm. Sam Mendes in for a long time, and then— It's because you've seen second, one movie and haven't seen right, the other. I had some second thoughts about 1917, and again, I know I keep saying they're releasing it really late, but they're releasing it really late. There's so much recency bias that goes into this stuff. I just saw The Irishman, so I'm like, Al Pacino's going to win. Right. Even though Brad Pitt is unbelievable in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. So, I picked Quentin to win. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I agree with that. Okay. I I don't, I have no feel. If you told me that, like, Mendes and El Motivar and 
Fernando Morellis are going in this category, I'd buy it. Mm-hmm. It, it. It's very possible. Now, I think it feels like the kind of thing that filmmakers are rewarded for what Quentin did with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think it is that sort of wistfulness that you were describing earlier is a feeling that I think people want to get across. And that's the sort of thing that like somebody like Guillermo del Toro won for with The Shape of Water. It had a kind of nostalgic summation mm-hmm. of his project. Yeah. And I think that's what Once Upon a Time does for him as well. Yeah, I think even when Once Upon a Time came out, we were talking about how like this is the type of movie that a director wins for, which is to say it's a, a comment on a career rather than the pinnacle of the career. Um, people re- rarely win for their actual masterpiece. Now, I kind of think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a masterpiece, but... Uh, you, you know, and we don't need to get into Tarantino rankings right now because I don't need to be the person on the internet I was making fun of like 20 minutes ago. But wait, what Tarantino movie do you think he should have won for? Isn't it for Pulp Fiction? I don't know. I think there's a good case for Inglorious Bastards. I mean, Inglorious Bastards is my favorite. Yeah. But, you know, and again, what does this award mean? Is it like the best pure, di- is it for that like a- athletic Sam Mendy style directing? Is it for like the breakthrough, the crystallization of this person has a vision and and finally did it? They made their great movie. Is it for a career? It's usually more of a lifetime of achievement award than like the one great movie. Yes, I think that's right. And that's ultimately why I picked Quentin. You could tell me any of these people would win. I could, I, I would buy a Scorsese win in a heartbeat. I think it's completely it. possible um, because it's, it is a guy still working with, with power, with mm-hmm. juice. So best picture. Yeah. So as I said, I have 10 nominees. You have nine. Yeah. I'll give you my runners up. Okay. Bombshell. Okay. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Uh-huh. Waves. Uh-huh. And Joker. Those are the four that I think that I think could compete but won't make the cut. Okay. Now, I could be wrong. Okay. Of course. Yeah. There's the caveat that I could be wrong is true for all of these categories. Here's my 10. Okay. The Two Popes. Okay. The Farewell. Okay. 1917. Ford versus Ferrari, Jojo Rabbit, Mm -hmm. which is a film we have not mentioned previously, Mm -hmm. Little Women, Mm -hmm. Parasite, Mm -hmm. The Irishman, Mm -hmm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. and Marriage Story. Okay. How many of those do we match on? Seven. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I think that they are... So it was very interesting because I was making this list and... I just, guys, I really don't like being this unprepared and not knowing this much in front of people. Like, I don't like doing it in front of Sean. I really don't like doing it in public. You're just, you're getting real side of me right now. This is I'm vulnerability. Out, okay. You need I'm vulnerability. Doing the best that I can. I'm doing the best that I can, but I'm not happy about it. Okay. I don't like to show up like this. Anyway, made my list. That applies to the whole, everything I just said, by the way, the whole, all the predictions. When I was making this list, there were six that were a lock for me. Okay. What are they? And they were Irishmen, Once Upon a Time. Little Women, Jojo Rabbit, Parasite, and Marriage Story. Those stayed in place for me. Okay. So I agree with those as locks, and we'll put 1917 aside because we okay. haven't seen it, so we can't call it a lock. Right. So that leaves Ford versus Ferrari, yes. The Farewell, yes. and the Two Popes from my list, okay. right? Yes. I have Two Popes on there because, like, it's from Telluride. I think also... I put Anthony Hopkins in supporting for the same reason because it just seems like um, um, an actor-driven movie mm-hmm. and people are going to be charmed by it. And Jonathan Price being in the conversation suggests to me that people are really in that and that usually buoys someone to a um, to a nomination. I put Bombshell on the list, the same reason for the last minute. Okay, I cannot wait to talk to people about Bombshell 
But ultimately, I thought that it was like a very enjoyable movie that is just driven by performances. And the acting branch is the largest branch. And this, it's Bombshell is this year's Vice, which was the post before that of kind of like the late breaking, political ish, great performances from people you like. And you just kind of like go with it. Mm-hmm. I think that's very sound logic. Um, and I have Joker on this list. Your favorite movie of the year. Well, I'm trying to be a realist. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to prepare and to face for inevitability. I also, it has made a ton of money. And I did, I was swayed ultimately by a Scott Feinberg piece where he talked to like 45 Academy voters. And about half the people were like, huh, what a movie. Really moved by it. And the other people hadn't seen it, but were going to. And there are very few people, like there was a very small percentage of this anonymous sample of voters who were like, not for me. Yes. And, I, you know, I I stand by the the positive things I said about Joker. I think it actually is extremely well made. And I think that there actually is a vision in place. I think there are borrowed elements, but I think he is getting amazing performances from people. I think it does have tone, which is not easy to capture. I think he did have a big idea that he wanted to put into the world inside of that Trojan horse. And it's possible. And the other thing that happened, too, is... Those early conversations we had about the movie were all about what bad it was going to do in the world mm-hmm. and how it was going to lead to all of these terrible incidents. And then those things didn't happen. I mean, it's been out for like a month and also. Well, sure. But it, I think if there was an opening weekend tragedy and thank God there was not, it would have been different. This would have been a different conversation. For sure. And so we have what we have. The bombshell yeah. note is, is, is interesting. I also, for the same reason, I don't have Ford vs. Ferrari, which is a movie I've not seen, which is definitely swaying my opinion. But also... If neither Damon nor Bale are getting nominated, then I just think it's kind of forgotten. Yeah, that's an interesting test case. So what you've got there is you've got a Fox movie picked up during the Disney merger. Mm-hmm. You've got James Mangold, a person very respected in the Academy, and who frankly was doing the Joker thing before Joker with Logan. And you've got two big-time performances from two big-time movie stars and a movie that I haven't seen it in a couple of months, and so maybe it's sliding away, but it's coming soon. Mm-hmm. It's coming in two weeks. And... It is an attention getter. It is like a big, loud, fun movie about sports and about the cost of victory. And that's like a thing that can work in this environment. Now, whether there's also a kind of fait accompli energy around the movie, like I think six months ago, people were like, this is a big time Oscar contender. Right. And now maybe is it like running out of gas before it even gets to the starting line? I don't know. Great sports, me- I mean, car metaphors Thank there you. for you. Doing my best here. Um well, it'll be interesting to see. I'd love it if a movie like Waves could find its way in, too. And, right. like, The Farewell is kind of holding that spot for me right now. Yeah, I wanted to talk about I. So, I don't have it on Best Picture right now, which, is, by my own logic, doesn't seem to make sense because I have Aquafina and also Sujin Zhao and the, or Zhu on the list. But I think also that that will compete in screenplay and probably— That just seems like the classic going to win the screenplay. It's very possible. We haven't done the screenplay categories here. Maybe we'll focus on them more in a future episode. I One thing I noted is that it's not eligible for either Golden Globes category because it's— um, Do you remember that the Golden Globes, it has to be a English-language film, and so Roma was not eligible in either That's drama right. or That's right. um, comedy last year? And putting Roma in a comedy would never happen. But it, So I just kind of think that the farewell might— the Golden Globes is a place where a farewell would actually thrive and get like a lot of attention and remind people, hey, you really liked this. And I think you could, could you put it in a comedy? Maybe. It was, I'm not sure what it's been categorized as. It might right, be. Marketed as a comedy. And I, it just kind of, 
I was like, huh, I don't know where this this totally fits in. And I know where it fits in in the lower categories, but the best picture puzzle doesn't I it doesn't totally add up for me. I'd be thrilled though. Let me give you two more thoughts. Yeah. One, I don't think Parasite is a lock. Okay. And I think even though our energy about it has been huge and it is doing awesome business for a foreign language film mm-hmm. in this country, it is not a lock because it is a weird movie from a director most people are not familiar with. Yeah. And it's not the same as Roma. We're desperate to make it sound like Roma, but it is not like Roma. Here's how I'm thinking about it. It's not Roma. I think this is this year's Phantom Thread, which is like hmm. our hipster movie. Can it's we? Like, oh, hey, we did it. And every year there's one where it's like, Oh, wow. I don't actually have to yell at the Academy in public because they got, did one thing that I liked. Yeah, we probably can't have that end the farewell and to a lesser extent, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood marriage story, right. which also both have the veneer of like film geekery, you know, sort of like Baumbach is like a guy who a lot of people have liked for a really long time and has never really gotten to this place before. Yeah, but like marriage story is also it is it is literally about. It is about a marriage. It is about one of the most common experiences. I rewatched Green Book. I'm not so, Jesus, what a slip. I rewatched Greenberg last night, though the number of times that Green Book was served to me before I finally made it to Greenberg was like a personal trial. Anyway. Rewatch- Greenberg comes before Green Book in the dictionary, thank God. Anyway, watch Greenberg. I hadn't seen it since we moved to LA. Huh. That is, that's a choice of a movie. And I I had forgotten how awkward and closed off it is, which is clearly the point, but it is not, it's not a lot of it is like watchable. And Marriage Story is a classic, like watchable Oscar movie. Let me just position something to yeah. you. Before Greta Gerwig, after Greta Gerwig. Oh, you're asking me to choose? No, I think that Gre- Greenberg is, obviously she, she sure. appears in the film, but this is before that stage of his life personally yeah. and then after. I think that, I mean, that's true. The, the weight of influence from our partners. We haven't done our prediction. Okay. For what's going to win. Oh, my God. I honestly didn't even think about this. Um, wow. you're. This is real-time anxiety on a podcast. I'll just say what I picked. Yeah, okay. I picked Marriage Story. Interesting. And I can't say I'm, I'm very confident about that. Okay. There's. I can see a world in which five of these films actually win. Mm-hmm. And I think Jojo Rabbit right now, we're kind of treating like a red herring, but I don't, I, w- I wouldn't be so confident right. that it's not going to come through and get nine nominations. I wouldn't be shocked. It is interesting that you and I only have it in Best Picture and none of the other major categories. I mean, in theory, Taika for director and for screenplay mm-hmm. is very possible. It's even possible that he gets into supporting actor, though it's very competitive this year. But like, if you told me Jojo Rabbit or Little Women or The Irishman, or Once Upon a Time, or Marriage Story 1, I wouldn't be shocked by any of those. That's five different movies that I feel like I have a chance, which means I think we're going to get a cool race. Because I, I like a lot of these movies. Yeah. I don't always like a lot of the movies. Last year was kind of a tough road to hoe, especially when we knew like Stars Born and stuff like that had no chance. Yeah. No, I think that's true. So what's your, what's your pick? I sort of... I come, I'm going to go with Once Upon a Time. I think it's a good pick. Um, and I'm going with that because I, I we picked Tarantino for director, and there, there's not always a correlation, but there often is. And I I can, if you're going through preferential balloting, you can see a lot of scenarios in where it's like number two or number three, right? And I don't, is there any one film here that's going to get all of the number ones? This is the best case you've made yet. Okay. That's great. a great case for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Thank you so much. Now, it's possible the marriage story cuts through to the heart of so many divorced people in Hollywood. And there are many divorced people in Hollywood. And yeah. there are a lot of men. This is ultimately about a man. I don't I don't know 
is. I I have we we have we'll talk about it later. Can't wait for our marriage story episode. Amanda, this has been fun. Do you feel the anxiety has lifted from you? No, of course not. I'm just going to live in it for the rest of the day. That's not how anxiety works. Okay. That would, it just goes away. I'd like to encourage everyone to add Amanda with her picks frequently when she gets them Please wrong. Please don't. No. She, she'll really appreciate it. She loves to engage with the fans on that level. And maybe next week, what, what are we going to talk about next week? The Irishman? That's exactly right. We have a big Irishman episode. Wow. My, my advice to people listening to the show that have made it this far is to... Go out to a movie theater and see The Irishman. Absolutely. And it's not just because it's good, and it's not just because I want you to support theaters, yada, yada, yada. It's a movie that is epic in scale, and it it deserves to be kind of sunken in two. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, and it is, they're right, to watch, they, they'll watch the movie on Netflix on November 27th when it hits the service, and they'll watch it over two nights, or they'll break it up, and they're daunted by three and a half hours. It is long. Yes. We can't, we can't deny that it's long. But I loved seeing it in that way, and I'm glad I saw it in that way. I agree entirely. As everyone knows, I always recommend a theater experience. It really, it did feel like, uh, I will remember seeing The Irishman. I will remember it as an experience and have it, and especially the the last hour and a half kind of washing over me. It is a transformative theater experience. I will also say, practically speaking, I always have to go to the bathroom during movies, and I made it. Three and a half hours in my seat, didn't move. So you can too. I believe in you. I also made it, but just barely. <laughs> so brace yourself for that before you go see The Irishman. Amanda, thank you, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Sean. Now let's go to my conversation with director Bong Joon-ho. And for this conversation, because Bong is from South Korea, we're going to have him joined by a translator who will be translating all of my questions. I am absolutely elated to be joined by Bong Joon-ho and his translator, Sharon Choi. Guys, thank you for being here. Hi, thank you. (laughs) So America is flipping out for Parasite. (laughs) And I'm wondering if you guys knew, director Bong, did you know that America was going to love this film? So when I'm creating the film, um, I'm always anxious to know whether or not even the closest people around me would like my film, like my wife, you know, so let alone America. Um, It's something that I'm always anxious about, but I'm so happy that the film is doing so well here. What is it that people have been responding to based on the feedback that you're getting the last couple of weeks? Hmm. 예측 못 하겠다라는 어, 스토리가 이렇게 막 흘러갈 줄은 정말 예측 못 했다. 놀랬다 이런 뭐 그런 반응 기쁘죠. 예. 관객들을 어떤 롤러코스터에 태우는 그런 기분은 항상 즐거우니까. 예. So a lot of people are commenting about how unpredictable the story is and how they never know what's going to happen next. Um, and you know that's a great feeling. It's always nice to make the audience feel like they're on a roller coaster. 따라서 <웃음> 아직 안 보신 분들은 이렇게 자기 자신을 잘 보호해야 됩니다. 볼 때까지. 네, 절대 스포일링이 되면 안 되는 거지. 모르고 가는 게 제일 퓨어하게 탁 가야 되니까. 음. So for those of um, you who haven't seen it, it, you must protect yourself from all the information and spoilers out there. You have to go in with a pure mind. Yes, this is a spoiler-free zone. We will not be spoiling the movie, I promise. But you know, I'm curious because so many of your films deal with genre. But your last couple of films have a lot of fantastical elements. Yeah. And this movie is much more grounded. 
Yeah. And I'm wondering if that was a reaction to the previous experiences mm. you had had. Did you want to do something more on the ground? Yeah, it, it's quite true that the, my previous movie was about super pig. There was a huge, very lovely creatures in the movie. <laughs> and Okja, the other, yes. Yeah, and the other one is the, the, the sci-fi train action movie. Uh, it's really sci-fi. But yeah. The production company and I already agreed to do Parasite even before I worked on Okja, so it wasn't necessarily a reaction to my previous projects, um, but I de- did definitely want to work with Korean actors to tell a story that's more grounded in the reality of Korea. Yeah, maybe I'm hungry for some very Korean subtle <laughs> nuances and something like a japaguri in the movie. Yeah. 이해 못했지. No, 그거. Did you understand what japaguri is? Uh, I, I did, but maybe you can explain it here for our listeners. So in the film, the subtitle says it's ramdon, a combination of ramen and udon. Um, but in Korea, japaguri consists of two very cheap instant noodles, um, one spicy and one very salty. 특히 그 젊은 분들 또는 초딩 분들이 좋아하시는 어린이 입맛의 그런 음식인데, 그러니까 부잣집에도 초딩인 거 마찬가지니까 그거를 그렇지만 이제 거기에 어떤 부자 가족의 리치 패밀리의 어떤 토핑이 들어가는 거죠. So in particular, japaguri is very popular with young people and especially kids. Um, and so in the film, you the the rich kid is still a kid nonetheless. So he wants this japaguri dish, um, but the the mom has to add on this topping fit for the rich. Um, but the sirloin topping is something that I created. People don't usually eat it that way. Ah, interesting. Okay. Mm. So that's a good segue to another question I had, which is that because you're back in your native country making a film, there's a lot of cultural references that American audiences and jerks like me will not understand. Mm. Is it important to you that people get those references or is it okay if they're kind of flying over our head that whether it's the cuisine Mm -hmm. or the lifestyle or maybe Mm. the way that a family communicates with one another? 특정한 그룹의 사람들 뭐 관객들이만 킥킥거리면서 볼수 있는 디테일이 있는 건 재밌는 요소인 것 같아요. 어, 그렇지만 물론 그게 이렇게 이 리치앰프어 양극화 얘기처럼 되게 유니버설한 스토리가 기본 바탕 깔려 있을 때 그게 오히려 더 돋보이는 것 같아요. 처음부터 끝까지 이해할 수 없는 것들 투성이면은 영화를 왜 보겠어요 우리가? 어, 그래서 아주 기본적인 그러니까 유니버설한 스토리를 바닥에 깔고 그런 디테일들이 정말 그 솔로인 토핑처럼 얹어져 있으면. 우리 모두가 공감하는 얘기인데 동시에 거기에 낯선 처음 보는 디테일도 있게 되니까 이래저래 다 좋은 거죠. So I think having certain details that only a certain group of audiences can, you know, laugh at adds an interesting element to the film. Of course, it's all under the assumption that the basic story is universal. Like with Parasite, the story about rich and poor and polarization, that's that's very universal. And that's why the small details really stand out. Um, so, you know, you have that story 
universal story as a basis, and if those minute details are added in as, you know, like the sirloin toppings, then um, then I think it creates a great experience where everyone can sympathize with the story, but also access these very unfamiliar and new details. Yeah, it had me Googling a lot of things in the aftermath, mm. having mm. seen it a couple of times <laughs> to understand it a little bit more clearly. I, When you're working on a film with such visual intricacy, are you sketching as you're writing? Are you creating the images while writing? Well, writer directors are all the same. So, the sound and image are in your mind. So, we use the scenario in the final draft. I got final draft. So, the sound and image are 그 중에 몇몇 또 이제 것들은 직접 그리기도 하죠. 이미 그러니까 스토리보딩이 시작되려면 아직 멀었지만 핵심 이미지들은 몇개 그리기도 하죠. 응. I think it's similar for all writer-directors, but the moment you begin writing, you already have ideas for sound and images just boiling in your mind. We just have to relay that through, you know, a particular format of, you know, a script. So that's why we have to use, you know, applications like Final Draft. Um, but it's really uh, to relay my ideals, ideas in this, you know, prose format. Um, but from the very beginning, um, my conception of the story is always very much intertwined with the image and sound that ultimately ends up in the film. Um, you know, when I'm writing the script, it's still quite a long time away from starting my storyboard process, but I do begin to draw and sketch out some core scenes and images. What were the images that you drew in the early stages before the storyboarding mm. on this film? 그두 가지가 있어요. 뭐 약간 스포일링 알러트를 해야 되긴 하지만 어쨌든 그 지하실 남자의 얼굴에 이렇게 피가 이렇게 해서 피가 이렇게 삼각형으로 퍼져 있는 모습 그런 것도 그렸었고 그 다음에 그 오리지널 하우스키퍼가 이렇게 잔창 밀고 있는 거 있죠. 공중 우리가 공중부양신이라 불렀는데 그 공중에 떠서 그때 기괴한 이미지인데 그거 그린 게 많이 있지. So there are two images, and I do have to issue a small spoiler alert. Um, so one image is of the um, the the basement man where um, the blood on his face sort of forms a triangle. And another image is the original housekeeper sort of hovering midair trying to push the shelf away. That is one of my favorite shots in the film. <laughs> uh, do you find it easier, based on your conversations with actors, to work on films where Everything is so meticulously drawn out where you have these specific storyboards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 이미 그 자기한테 주어진 스테이지를 딱 알고 가는 거니까 배우들도 어떻게 보면 더 속편할 수도 있을 것 같아요. So I think for actors, it may feel a little uncomfortable having the camera positions and the blocking and everything so set meticulously. But instead, um, you know, once I set something, I push through with it. I never, you know, change my mind in between. And it's not as if I try this and that. So for actors, it might, you know, feel uh, better to know the stage that you're going to be on. 
근데 그치만 이제 대사 다이얼로그에 있어서는 전 되게 오픈돼 있어요. 그래서 뭐뭐 인프로바이즈하거나 뭔가 이렇게 바꿔서 표현하는 것도 되게 좋아하고 권장하고 저도 또 현장에서 야, 이게 날것 같아 하고 이렇게 대사를 현장에서 바로 즉석에서 고쳐서 던져주기도 하고 서로 핑퐁을 그런 핑퐁을 많이 하거든요. But in terms of the dialogue, I'm very open during my process. Um, I love when actors improvise and change things, and it's something that I encourage as well. On set, I also, you know, just spontaneously change lines and, you know, suggest it to them. So it's always a ping pong um, where we throw out ideas and throw out new lines at each other. Director Boggins just showed me a photo on his iPhone of the original sketch of that sequence where the original housekeeper is pushing open the shelving unit. And then what looks like a test in yeah, trying to figure out. The first one is my original drawing. The second one is a conceptual art of the production design team. The third one is the test and the, the practice of the, the act, act, actress in the 무술팀과 같이 이거 미리 연습하는 거예요. So you, you mentioned that you want to have a kind of a looseness sometimes with the actors, but there's so much precision that goes into this work that you're doing, and you have this this representation <laughs> of three different stages of designing something like this. Is there ever a time when you realize when you're on set, oh, actually, this thing I thought was going to work is not going to work? Mm. Well, 그런 순간들을 만들려고 오히려 노력하는 편이에요. 스토리보드를 만들었지만 동시에 그걸 또 파괴하고 싶은 마음도 있는 거죠. 이거 이거 이대로만 하면 안 돼. 이러면 내가 너무 이거 무사한일하게 가는 거야. 뭐 이런 예를 들면. 예. Um, so I actually try hard to create those moments. You know, I always meticulously create my storyboard, but at the same time, I have the desire to go against it. Um, because, you know, to just follow what I planned during prep and just to follow the storyboard would be a very, you know, would be very comfortable and almost too easy. 부잣집에서 예를 들면은 이제 캠핑을 가네 만에 하면서 이제 딸내미랑 이제 뭐 다에 뭐 오리주댕이 뭐입 대빨라와 있다 오바 하고 이제 뒤에 조혜정 씨가 이렇게 내려오는 장면 있어요. 그럼 소리 꽥 지르고 야 그다음에 막 그거는 현장에서 다 바꾼 거예요. 이게 아 이런 대사 템 대사도 바꾸고 블로킹 라인도 바꾸어서 새롭게 오케스트레이션 한 거야. 원래 컨티와는 달라요 그 장면. 예를, 예를 들면 그런 부분들. For example, when you have the the rich family in the rich house talking about how the daughter doesn't want to go camping and you have the mom coming down and sort of screaming at her. Um, that was something that we all changed on set. Um, we changed the lines. We changed the the blocking and the the pace. Um, that was something that we newly orchestrated at the spot, on the spot. So the construction of the sets is so remarkable. Was there ever a period where you were going to scout locations or was it always designed? Did you have to build what you wanted? 그 실제 로케이션은 되게 영화 전체 한 10% 15%도 안 돼요. 그비올때막그 주인공들 이동하는 거 있잖아요. 그게 이제 계단도 많이 나오는데 그런 게 이제 실제 서울의 뒷골목들에서 많이 찍은 거고 부잣집 가난한 집 가난한 집 주변 동네까지 다 이제 우리 디자인한 거죠. 아주 오래전 몇 달간 계획해서 다 만든 건데 
So um, only around 10% to 15% of the film was, sh was shot on actual location. Um, it's the sequence where the poor family is descending down all the staircases in the rain. Those were shot in the back alleyways of Seoul. Um, but the rich house, the poor house, the neighborhood surrounding the poor house, they were all sets that we designed and built. Um, we planned it very meticulously through, uh, for a couple months. 아이 동네를 워터탱크 안에 지은 거란 말이지. 그 다음에 물을 넣고 찍은 거예요. 이게 그래가지고 이 여기 정말 계획을 많이 했던 거죠. I'm seeing a shot of the flooded streets right now, and much yeah. shorter hair on you as well. Yeah, exactly. It looks worse. <laughs> <laughs> so that was um, the poor neighborhood that we built in a water tank, um, and we poured water in that tank after we uh, finished shooting there. And that was something that we um, worked very hard to prepare. There's this recurring joke in the movie where the character of Kevin keeps saying it's so metaphorical about everything, <laughs> which I loved and thought was so funny. But also, the movie is very metaphorical. And if you don't see that, then you're not watching the movie correctly, I would imagine. So, did you feel as if you were mocking your own intent with the movie? Or were you mocking a kind of teenager who is having that moment where everything feels metaphorical? <laughs> 그, 그런 질문 해줘서 되게 고맙네. 듣고 싶었던 얘기인데. 예. So thank you for that question. I really wanted someone to bring that up. Oh, good. <웃음> 보통 평론가나 이제 이런 이제 뭐 유튜버들이 할 얘긴데 뭐 메타포리컬 하다는 게 배우가 먼저 화면 안에서 그 말을 해버리니까 사실 되게 어이없는 거란 말이죠. 예. So usually it's the film critics and you know YouTubers who say um, that you know this is really metaphorical. But in this film, you have the actor announcing it first on screen. So that's the really funny part. 따라서 그 어떻게 보면 오히려 이게 그 상징적으로 뭘 받아들이지 말라는 얘기 같기도 해요. 나도 뭐 찍으면서 그 대사를 써놓고 나도 한번 생각을 해봤는데 쓸 때야 뭐 직관적으로 쓰니까 그래서 오히려 상징. 적인 생각을 안 하기를 원하는 건가? 뭐 이런 생각도 해봤단 말이지. 근데 실제로 그돌그 스콜라스턴 그 산수경석을 뭐 상징적이다라고 하는데 그게 나중에 그 그렇게 말한 그 놈의 본인의 머리를 팍 박살내버리잖아. 그러니까 어, 상징에 의해서 우리가 두개골이 깨지진 않잖아요. 어, 내, 내 수술까지 받잖아 얘가. 뭐 약간 스포일링이지만 어쨌든 그래서 그그 그, 그 느낌이 중요한 것 같아요. 음. Um, so I think, you know, it kind of, it could mean that, um, you know, this film shouldn't be uh, seen as being so metaphorical. You know, when I wrote that line, I wrote it very intuitively, but this is something that I thought while shooting the those scenes. Um, and, you know, it's the scholar stone that he announces is very metaphorical, but in the end, that stone is the thing that crushes his skull. And, you know, we never get our skulls crushed with metaphors. So I think it wanted. Um, I think people wanted. I think I wanted well, people to view literally. this object as something very physical. <laughs> I like that a lot. So uh, when when I saw the film with my wife, when it ended, she turned to me and she said, "That was masterful." And I feel like that's a word that we are hearing a lot about you and this film right now. Hmm. I'm wondering though. You make it look effortless now, but I know that some productions have been harder than others. Where does this production? kind of rank among the films you've worked on? Was it easier to pull off than other films? Was it more difficult in some ways? You mean relatively? Yeah. Yeah. You know, movie making is always very tough and difficult. But uh, 상대적으로, 그렇죠. 이게 뭐, 
모든 환경이 저를 둘러싼 환경이 어, 제작사나 또뭐 파이낸서나 뭐 스튜디오가 워낙 서포티브 했으니까 어, 그래서 뭐 그리고 후반 작업을 되게 긴 시간 정교하게 했는데 또 한국에서 뭐 나를 갖고 뭐 그거 갖고 뭐 무슨 후반 작업 때 저를 그냥 내버려 두고 누가 이렇게 간섭하거나 뭐 피곤하게 하는 사람도 없고 그래서 정말 3월에 딱 이제 깐느 영화제 서브미션 하기 전에 3월에 모든 작업을 딱 끝났는데 처음 느껴보는 그런 감정이 있었어요. 여태껏 이제 7편 영화를 찍을 동안 처음으로 아뭐뭐 뭐 했다다 후회 없다 이런 느낌을 받았던 첫 경험이었던 것 같아요. Um, so relatively, it definitely was an easy process because the production company, financer, studio, everyone was very supportive and I was working in a very supportive environment. And we spent a, quite a long time in post-production um, trying to be as meticulous as possible. And people just, you know, let me be, didn't interfere Um You know, I I didn't feel exhausted during the process. So we finished editing the film in March, just before submitting it to Cannes. And I felt something that I had never felt before during the seven films that I had done. I felt like I have no regrets that I had done everything that I wanted to, and it was the first time I ever felt something like that after a film. Did you know that everyone was going to feel the same way? That this is the one. This seems like the mm. film you've made great films, and they they're all well received. But this mm. one. Between the box office and the critical reception 음, and winning 음, the Palm Door, it, it's a it's a moment. 그거는 그 아까 말한 후회 없다라고 한 거는 내 어떤 개인적인 영화를 만드는 사람으로서의 후회 없음이고 사실 만족스럽게 찍었더라도 그게 관객들이 어떻게 반응할지 또는 뭐 영화제에서 심사위원들이 그걸 좋아할지 싫어할지 그런 건 모르는 거잖아요. 그래서. 나의 개인적인 아 후회 없다라고 마무리를 지은 것까지는 행복했지만 이제 그게 세상 밖으로 나갈 때는 이미 이제 완성한 다음 날부터 불안한 거죠. 아까 처음에 얘기한 것처럼. So when I said that I have no regrets, I meant it as someone, as just an individual who creates films. You know, even if the the process was satisfying for me personally, I can never know how the audience will respond or how jury members at festivals will um, react. So uh, personally, I was very happy um, to finish this film without any regrets. But you know, just thinking about how it will received, how it will be received from the outside world, I'm always anxious thinking about it. You called Snowpiercer your hallway movie, and you called this your staircase movie. Mm. Is that the sort of <laughs> metaphor that mm. that hits you beforehand mm. Do you, when you think of it as a sort of a structural or a physical mm. device mm. and a challenge to you, or is that just something that you've reflected upon after thinking about the design mm. of your movies? Challenging이란 표현이 딱 맞는 것 같아요. 그러니까 저랑 그 DP가 그 Snowpiercer랑 Parasite 같은 DP인데 우리끼리 그런 얘기. 아 이거 복도 영화다. 어. 그래서 그러니까 두 시간 내내 일직선 통로를 질주하는 그래서 그런 어떤 그런 공간적인 특수한 상황이 되게 시네마틱하고 그런 곳에서도 영화를 두 시간 끌고 갈수 있다라는 어떤 물론 쉬, 좀 어려울 수도 있는 건데 그, 그런 도전 그게 우리의 어떤 가슴에 또 불을 질렀죠. 어. So I think, you know, um, challenging is the perfect word to describe it. The, um, I worked with the same DP for Snowpiercer and Parasite. And I remember when we were working on Snowpiercer, we, you know, we called it a hallway movie and, um, you know, have, it's, it's a movie where, you know, for two hours, you sort of go through this straightforward tunnel. And that specificity in terms of the space, um, was a challenge to, you know, to pull, 
to drive a narrative, you know, with that uh, with that specific restriction. But that also kind of lit a fire in our hearts. So it was great. 선국 열차는 대신 이제 일직선의 질주지만은 거기서 이제 계속해서 새로운 트레인 섹션이 나오고 또 새로운 캐릭터들이 계속 등장하게 되니까 거기에 이제 그런 어떤 변화의 의지에서 끌고 갈수 있었던 것 같고 패러사이트는 더좀그 복잡한 어떻게 보면 더 중첩된 레이어들의 문제인 것 같아요. 그 계단이란 게 계단이 영화에 진짜 많이 나오긴 하는데. 뭐 프로덕션 디자이너하고도 각 계단마다 다 어떻게 다르게 그 각도와 폭과 사이즈와 각도와 모든 걸 조절할지 뭐 얘기도 했, 많이 했었지만 음, 훨씬 더 <웃음> 상징적이죠. <웃음> 메타포리컬한데 또 동시에 물리적이기도 하고 계단에서 뭐 이렇게 사람이 어떻게 되고 막 그러잖아요. 어. Um, so while Snowpiercer uh, Snow sort of rages on straightforward, um, you, you're constantly um, brought to new train sections and new characters. So for that film, we, we really relied on these changes that will happen throughout the narrative. Um, but for, for Parasite, you know, what's really important about the staircases is that, you know, it's overlapping layers. And we have a lot of different staircases in the film. So we, you know, designed, um, you know, the angles and with differently for every staircases and you know the staircases are much more metaphorical in parasite but at the same time it's also very physical because a lot of things happen on those staircases a lot of physical things tell me about your partnership with song kang ho mm. do you see him as an actor as a proxy for yourself in films or do you see him as just an embodiment of the character that you've written a proxy of what punjin kamdongnyeo punjin 같은 걸로 보시는지 아니면은 그냥 완전한 그 자체적인 캐릭터로 음, 보시는지 그그그 음. 그, 그 이제 그 본인 그러니까 송강호라는 배우 본인은 되게 그 독자적인 예술가라고 생각해요. 그러니까 자기 관점이 있어요. 시나리오와 전체 작품을 이렇게 오버룩하는 이렇게 내려다보는 해석하는 자기만의 관점이 있고 근데 다행히 그 관점이나 해석이 저랑 불일치된 적은 한 번도 없었어요. 그래서 어, 아주 빠르게 본능적으로 그런 부분이 일치하기 때문에 일하기가 되게 편하고 어. 그리고 그 저랑 네 편의 작품을 했는데 매번 되게 많이 다르거든요. 어. 비슷하게 보일 수도 있지만 사실 많이 다른 건데 예. So Song Kang-ho, you know, I think of him as a very idiosyncratic artist. He has his own distinct perspectives and interpretations of my scripts and, you know, just overall uh, works. And we've... Um, We never had differences in terms of our separate interpretations of the same story. So very intuitively, um, you know, we sort of look at things similarly, and that's why it's always been a very comfortable partnership to have. Um, but throughout the four films that I wor um, worked on with him, he's always played very different characters, although on first glance they may seem similar. 그리고 작품과 작품 사이의 다른 것도 물론이지만 심지어 촬영하는 당일날도 그 해당 테이크, 테이크 원, 테이크 투, 테이크 쓰리 반복하면 거기서 또 어떤 다른 부분들이 있어요. 동물적으로 다르게 하는. 그러니까 매 순간에 어떤 연기가 짜여지고 계획된 예측 가능한 것이 아니라 어, 길을 가다 어떤 날것의 다큐멘터리를 찍은 것처럼 매 순간을 생생하게 만들려는 또 어떤 그런 노력이 있어요. 그분이. 그런 게 저는 참 좋죠. 
Um, so he's played very different characters throughout, you know, um, me working with him. But even for the different takes that he shows on the day of shooting, all the takes that he shows are very different. And he has that animalistic quality about him where his performances are never planned. They're never predictable. Um, he, It's like shooting a documentary on something very raw that happens at the moment. And he's a performer who always tries to make sure each moment feels vital. And that's why um, I love him as an actor. Yeah, his your movies with him are my favorite of your films by far. I feel like the, mm-hmm. the what you guys have the comparison is made frequently to Jimmy Stewart and Alfred Hitchcock and this relationship that they had <laughs> together too. I and I was curious if you had screened any films either for your actors or your crew before you started on Parasite. So rather than watching films, we would gather and drink. <laughs> yeah, that's fitting. He he's quite a heavy drinker. I'm not, but he but he loves. You know, that like, food itself. I like talking to people. 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 그 킥오프 하기 전부터 촬영이 이미 약간 가족 같은 상태로 시작을 한 거예요. 서로 되게 친밀하게. 예. Um so it's not that he likes alcohol but he just loves spending time with people and talking to them and um especially with his col- um colleagues and younger actors he really spent a lot of time with them because he really um prioritizes harmony and being an ensemble. So even before we began shooting they already had that family um family like intimacy. And getting drunk could also be research with these people. You know, they, they, they're all getting drunk in the film together as well. So <laughs> it, may, it makes sense. Um, if you could program a double feature with Parasite, any movie. Mm, double you, feature. Yes. Joseph Lodge, The Servant. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Why? And, and also The Housemaid, the Kim Ki-young Korean classic, the Martin Scorsese Foundation restored that. that. Movie and yeah, those two movies. You've yeah. mentioned those two movies before. I feel like they were on your your sight and sound, right? Your sight and sound list from sight many years ago. Sight and sound list. Um, 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 um. Kim Ki-young, 항상 저의 top ten list는 언제 어디서건 항상 그 top ten list에 있었죠. 어떤 매체였던 간에. So no matter the medium or list, Kim Ki-young's films are always in the top ten, uh, you know, movie list for me. The Housemaid is also it's also stale movie. Yes. Yeah, very focused on the, the beautiful there. So many things happen there. And and it's also about the the middle class crisis kind of the, the concept. And has not it's aged very well. It's it's still relevant. 지금 봐도 되게 공감할 수 있는 영화. It's very fun. Everyone should watch it. Forgive this question, but what is it like to be in the middle of the Oscar race? Is that strange mm. for you? 처음 해보는 일이라 뭐 되게 신기하기도 하고 어제도 가버너스 어워드에 이제 참석하고 왔는데 뭐이 캠페인의 기간도 길고 하는 것도 많기 때문에 좀 육체적으로 힘들 때도 있지만 그래도 즐거울까 그러니까 그 과정에서 많은 아티스트들을 만날 수 있고 지금 하고 있는 것 같은 이런 또 우리 시네필들과의 즐거운 대화 같은 것도 또 좋고 어제는 또 우리 데이비드 린치 님과 그 리나 베르티 물러를 근거리에서 볼수 있는 또 그런 또 즐거운 시간이었죠. 
Um, so this is the first time I'm uh, participating in something like this. So it all feels new. Yesterday, I went to the Governor's Award. Um, and, you know, this is a long campaign where you do so many things. So at times it can be physically challenging, but I'm really enjoying the process. I get to meet a lot of great artists um, and I get to have a uh, great conversation with cinephiles like we're doing now. Um, and I was able to wa- uh, look at David Lynch and Lena Wertmuller uh, very closely yesterday so all those things have been very great maybe maybe for parasite uh, the lost highway oh yeah lost highway and blue velvet was quite yes slightly maybe inspirational i think those would be tremendous pairings for sure lost highway in particular i feel like is a good choice um would an oscar nomination be meaningful to south korea do you think We've talked a lot about that mm, and how it's not mm, never received a foreign mm, language film nomination mm, before. Is there a sense that it matters to the country or is this just mm, – you've, you've called this a local award show, which is a great, <laughs> a great dig that I appreciated. But I, I wonder if it actually is meaningful. I don't 어, 한국에서 또 관심이 많은 건 사실이죠. 어, 근데 이제 뭐, 그, 특히 이제 한국 그 영화 팬들 입장에서는 이제 그 오스카에 이제 처음 뭐 이렇게 노미네이션이 될수 있을까. 어, 뭐든 처음이 이제 관심이 많잖아요. 이제, 깐느 같은 경우는 깐느 컴피티션에 한국 영화가 처음 들어간 게 인권택 감독님? 그지? 춘향전이었나? 춘향전? 음, 그게 2000년도였어요. 그때는 컴피티션에 들어간 것 자체가 되게 큰 화제가 됐었는데, 그 뒤로는 뭐, 박찬욱, 이창동, 뭐, 홍상수 감독님 등등, 그게 되게 자연스러워져 져버리고 말았거든요. 그래서 컴피티션에 들어가도 뭐, 그게 큰 뭐, 핫한 뉴스가 되지는 않죠. 이제, 이제, 오스카도 그렇게 되는 날이 이제 오지 않을까요? 서서히. 예. So, you know, of course, there's really no, uh, Uh, the Academy, the Oscars is the most famous, famous festival um, internationally. I only said it was local, um, trying to explain the difference in how um, in the systems, you know, compared to Cannes, Venice or Berlin. Um, but of course, you know, so many people in Korea are paying a lot of attention to whether or not this film will get nominated, particularly for fans um, of cinema. You know, um, everyone is wondering whether finally Korean, a Korean film will get nominated. Um, everyone is always interested in the first. Um, for Cannes Festival as well, the first film to enter competition was Im Gwantek's um, Chunyangjeon in 2000. Um, and at the time, it was a huge you know, piece of news. But after that, a lot of Korean directors have gone like Park Chan-wook, Lee Chang-dong, and Hong Sang-soo. So now it's quite natural uh, for people to expect a Korean film to be included in the in the lineup. Um, and one day, I hope, you know, with the Oscars as well, um, it won't really be a big deal um, whether or not a Korean film gets nominated. I'm pulling for you and I'm pulling for you in best director as well. 감독상에도 지금 응원을 하고 계시다고. 감사한데 뭐 예측하기 힘들지 않겠어요. 워낙 금년에 또 훌륭한 감독님들의 훌륭한 영화들이 워낙 많더라고요. 뭐 저도 아이리시맨 빨리 보고 싶은데 워낙 위대한 
감독님들의 작품이 많아서 아우 쉽진 않을 것 같아요. So thank you, but you know it's very difficult to predict. There have been so many amazing films by amazing directors this year. I can't wait to see The Irishman. Um, I don't think it will be easy, you know, because there are so many film masters also included in the in the season. Don't sell yourself short. Director Bong, I end every episode of this show by asking filmmakers what is the last great thing they have seen. Mm. What is the last great thing you have seen? 가장 최근에 보신 진짜 좋은 영화. 켈리 라이카트 감독 작품들을 근래에 많이 봤었는데 텔루라이드에서 퍼스트 카우란 작품을 봤는데 그 신작인데 어 되게 조용하고 차근차근 조용하게 시적으로 흘러가는 영화인데 묘한 흡입력이 있어 갖고 So I've been watching a lot of Kelly Reichardt's film recently, and I saw her most recent film, First Cow, at Telluride, and it's a very you know quiet and poetic film. But you know you just get sucked into the narrative, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about that film. 전혀 다른 건데 극단적으로 다른 건데 하나만 더 얘기하자면 그 Safdie Brothers 영화 좋아했었는데 Uncut Gem이라고. 그건 반대로 영화 너무 시끄러워요. 막 그냥 처음부터 하이퍼 상태에서 시작해서 그게 끝까지 유지되는데, 어그 영화의 에너지에 되게 압도됐어요. 그것도 되게 잊혀지지 않는. 그리고 아담 샌들러가 진짜 멋진 연기를 되게 훌륭하죠. 네. So this is on the other extreme end of the spectrum, but I have to mention Uncut Gems by the Safdie Brothers. You know, that movie, unlike First Cow, is so loud and it begins, you know, super hyper and, you know, just maintains that energy throughout. Um, I was very overwhelmed by that incredible energy and Adam Sandler, um, you know, showed such a great performance in that film as well. Yeah, those two movies. Um, yeah, they've remained on my mind for a very long time. I saw all three of them in a row. I saw First Cow and then Uncut Gems and then Parasite at Telluride <laughs> all in one day. It was an amazing day. Director Bong Sharon, thank you much, so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you again to Bong Joon-ho and thank you, of course, to Amanda Dobbins. Please stay tuned to The Big Picture later this week. I will be joined by Chris Ryan and Adam Naiman where we'll be breaking down our top five Martin Scorsese movies in honor of The Irishman. And I will also be joined by actor and now writer and director Edward Norton. See you then.